Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Pixel Sift. We've been peeking into the screens of the video game world and finding out what's up and who is where. I'm Gianni and joining me in the studio today is co-hosts Scott and Mitch. Hello. Hello. Do you have a desire to catch them all? Do you keep rather than trade in? (laughs) If you do, you'll understand our first topic we're looking at, obsessive game collections. Hi, I'm Nicholas McDonnell. I'm the artist, level designer, and sound designer, uh, and the director of Samurai Funk. Uh, we're a small Melbourne-based independent studio, uh, and we're with the developers of Screensheet. We'll be talking to Nick about developing their game, bringing it to console, and gamer entitlement. Yeah, we'll also be talking about video game gaming awards. Uh, does an award change your opinion of a game? And uh, we'll be talking about the value of awards and whether the games can, like, whether an award can be like baited, like Oscar bait. Things like that. (laughs) All that and more coming up today on this episode of Pixel Sift. Visit us on pixelsift.com.au. So, yes, obsessive gaming collections and libraries as well. Uh, This has come to our attention because of one of our Pixel Sifters here, James's excessive. Well, we're we're removing the the word excessive and replacing it with obsessive. I uh, think it's excessive. Steam library. Uh, And, yeah, we're just discussing, uh, yeah, gaming libraries in general. James has has stacked up to well over 600 games on his Steam library. Uh, Of that, 68% are unplayed, which uh, we found was pretty amazing. I myself have only got about a dozen games on there. In in defense of James. Yeah. As someone who's probably got the second biggest Steam library. Yeah. By by a long way away from what James has got. James has got a a significant number. Yeah. Um, A lot of those games you buy... Mostly because you would have played the game back in the day or you would have played it on another version and you just wanted to have a copy of it so that if you ever felt like playing it again, it was there, available, um, ready to go. Which I can completely understand. It's like, and that's the whole reason I finally jumped on the Steam bandwagon is because it's, uh, you know, it's great for nostalgia. It's great for keeping up to date. And it's great for just having things on hand without having to, you know, have everything installed and filling up your whatevers. I think a big factor of it is that most people... You know, when you play games, especially when you're younger, you didn't have a chance to have every game that you wanted. Maybe you had to hire them from the video store. Maybe you had to borrow them from a friend. And now when they become so cheap and they're available on different platforms and things like that, people go, oh, great. Yeah, I'm going to add that to my collection so that if I ever have the have the twinge of that particular feeling of nostalgia that I want to play that game, um, it's there and ready to, to fire up. Also, ready- also, I think the issue of, like, not getting around to them, I think... It's a video games is the one medium where it requires all of your being pretty much. If like, if for lack of a better term, it's like you need your eyes, your ears, your attention, your input, your you know your ability to receive information, your ability to give information. It's not, it's not just like a movie where you can sit down and maybe like also do a hobby as well. Like yeah, so like it's time consuming. Yeah. It takes up a lot of time and effort yeah. to get into games, and that's why also this attention consuming. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. And there's so many games I haven't touched on because of that reason. I mean, and like, as far as getting obsessive, I, <laughs> I'm an old console guy, if you haven't picked that up over the shows. So, I've rebought all my old consoles as well as all my old games and whatever. Uh, I'd say it's kicking over to like, what, seven or eight consoles now with at least double figure games on each of those. So, you know. And all of those, I'm sure, get plenty of time. 
played every day. Shoot, bring them out in order, play through them. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. But as far as hours go, each game I've clocked up a considerable amount on each, you know, like days worth of sinking into, especially when I kind of re-immersed myself into them after 10 years or whatever. So what have you got in your collection? Ah, <clears throat> uh, I don't know. The standout ones are, I guess, all the NES Zeldas. Cause just because <laughs> buying them back was such a pain and so expensive. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just all, all the great NES games, I guess, that I kind of lost throughout the years. There's a really good one that I took me a little while to get, but it, I think it's pretty available now for some reason. It just a few years ago it was harder. It was North versus South, the American Civil War, but it was lots of different kind of mini games within the game that I just, I just remember really enjoying it as a kid, and I still do now. It's, just, it's, a, it's really thin now, but, um, yeah. I it, guess the difference... Some of those classics I had to rebuy. The difference between that buying physical cartridges and physical hardware is buying those games now can be quite expensive if you're trying to track them down. Yeah. You know, there's limited supply. Maybe they're not in the best condition. Not everyone's got them, you know, buying them. But in comparison to buying something through through Steam and collecting it through that, you can buy those games very cheap and Steam very aggressively, you know, discounts their game. Um, and then with services like the Humble Bundle, that's <coughs> like, mm, exactly you know, even more exaggerated those that it becomes very competitive. I mean, those Zelda titles on the NES and the Super NES as well, that one's incredibly expensive. It, you know, you're looking at $100 easy for the game alone. And if you want booklets and all the other things that come off, off with it, you, you're looking more than that. I think collecting things kind of taps into something. And in, I think lots of people have this desire to collect things. And maybe video games is the thing they decide. I mean, you know, some people collect spoons. Some people yeah. collect plates and teacups. I don't want to meet those people who collect spoons. Yeah, well, you know, anyone can choose to decide to collect whatever they want to collect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I guess collecting something that's important to you from your youth is, is something that, you know, a lot of people put a lot of value in. And that's why it becomes obsessive rather than excessive or even addictive. You know, they're not the same. Uh, you know, we do this because we enjoy it, not because we can't not do it. Um, and I mean, Absolutely. that's video gaming gen- in general, I guess. I mean, th- with so many games out there, it's really hard to not want to play them all. You know, like Steam has over 5,000, like way more than that titles. Uh, you know, PlayStation 2 has friggin' 3,000 plus. Um, even Xbox 360 has close to 2,000. Interesting fact Festival. here. Uh, James, uh, video producer, he owns over 10% of Steam's titles. <laughs> Just yeah. to give you a bit of a number. Another interesting uh, stat is he's not played just under 10% of that amount. Um, so. But anyway, uh, yeah, another one. DS has got over a thousand games. So, like, if you buy all these consoles and you, you know, you spread yourself out across, it's very easy to rack up lots and lots of games. Uh, some of the arguments that I've also heard is that people like to have these for, I guess, a digital archiving purposes. That you know, you can't if you move from house to house, and you know, bits of hardware can fail. But if you've got the digital versions of it on an online library, then you kind of have yourself backed up. It's safe. Yeah. It's not going to get lost in transit. I mean, it's safe as far as we know it. I mean, the digital realm and digital, digital just distribution is still, I guess... Um, we haven't I'll, had any major failures in it, really. Yeah, I wouldn't call it its infancy because obviously it's been around for a while, but it still hasn't taken over... Oh, I don't know. I don't have the stats to back this up, but I feel like it hasn't taken over as the main you know, um, way of purchasing games, etc. I find it interesting that... The people that have massive digital collections don't actually consider themselves collectors. Like, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, like, because I have like an okay Steam library, but like, I wouldn't call myself a collector, even though I have more of those games than physical copies. So that, hmm. 
Yeah, I don't and, think and like the digital the digital collection <clears throat> people don't tend to label themselves as it, but like a person that collects spoons, yeah. there's is no a collector of spoons. You're right. There's yeah. no satisfaction. There, yeah. there might be. There's, there's not the same satisfaction in collecting digital games as there are having the hard copies, of course. And that's why it's such a huge industry still. You know, consoles and actual hard copies because people like to have that. It's something you can kind of show to people and it's you can tangible. take a picture of. And yeah. I mean, you can always, you know, capture a video of your Steam library as you're scrolling through it. But, <laughs> you know, that yeah. sort of thing can easily disappear into the ether if you if you haven't got it physically there. And also, you know, there's other factors to that as well, is that if you've got a digital library, it was only very recently that you were able to share that library with anyone else. It's different That's to true. having a, ca- a console cartridge where, you know, back in the day you would have lent that to someone yep. or you could have borrowed one from someone else. You couldn't do that previously with, with online and storages as like, you know, all I mean, those systems. This is all the same things that we went through with the music industry, with MP3s and whatever and digital, blah, blah, blah. So the same things apply. You know, this is not new things we, we're discussing. It's not new issues we're dealing with. Um, we know how it works and how it's going to work. People are going to amass... Heaps and heaps of games that they're not going to play, just like ten thousands of songs that you probably haven't, you know, listened to half of them because it's easier now and cheaper. And of course, we're going to do it. And the only thing now that they kind of uh, will try to get us to to buy outside of the digital realm because many people are very happy to buy um, just digital versions and not worry about the stuff. Is Especially the, gamers. Yeah, is the collector editions where they've got yeah. extra bits and pieces like little statues or figurines and things like that because that is that tangible thing that you know it's like the vinyl um, in that it's a tangible thing that you can have. Um, and a lot of them are made out of vinyl. Um, yep. Yeah, so it's a physical thing that you can have for basically you can like go amiibos and like yeah, that, like a, a piece of a piece of thing, and that's a different collection sort of idea as well. So you know, I think people like to have a mix between they want the cost of something that's going to be uh, it, you know intangible, they want it to be cheap and easy to buy, and for something that's going to cost uh, a bit more money, they want it to be good quality and, and high quality and things like also that. Also, like limited edition as well. Like I mean, sometimes the fact that like the the big turn on is it's difficult to get. That's right. Like, yeah. Perfect. Well, look, it's uh, an ever-growing collection that we have of games and more bits you and pieces. To collect this podcast? Yeah, we're up to. If you're collecting podcast episodes, we're up to episode nineteen. Um, look at that. Of we can drink. Oh yeah, we can. We've reached uh, legal age in, in terms Australia. of Australia. In Australia, in Australia, not maybe not overseas. The only country that matters. <laughs> <laughs> Brutal. Let's go into our next topic. Yep. Pixel Sim. It's not Pixel Sieve, it's Pixel Sifter. Pixel Sifter! Now, did you spend hours in front of the telly playing games with your friends and family on a screen that was divided in half or in quarters? Screen Cheat is a game that takes the natural disadvantage of everyone sharing the same screen and turns it into the main gameplay feature. Mitch and I spoke to Nick McDonald. He's part of Samurai Punk and they're an indie studio from Melbourne. They created a game as part of the 2014 Global Game Jam, yep. and that name of the game was Screen Cheat. And it was spawned from the theme, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. I we love are, that quote. It's, it's a, so cool. It's really great. Um, it's deep. Very deep. We asked Nick how they went, <clears throat> sorry, we asked Nick how they went from that theme to the game we see today. So the game... Obviously, it came out of that jam, and we were trying to make games that were kind of like cooperative local multiplayer. Well, actually, initially, we just wanted to make a networked game. So we wanted to make cooperative games where people had different perceptions of the world, and they would have to communicate information about what they saw in the world to achieve goals. Um, but because we didn't have time to do networking, we were like, okay, if it's split screen, if, if we make this game, everyone is just going to screen cheat. So the discussion then came up, it's like, why don't we make that 
the game. Like, why don't we take that failing of split-screen games and turn that into the core mechanic? And it kind of just went from there. Like, it made sense to make it a shooter. It made sense to make it kind of feel like Halo, because it was what we played a lot as kids. Um, and yeah, it just kind of evolved. And obviously, past the jam, it became a whole different thing. One of the things I noticed when playing it is that your level design, it's really awesome how you've segregated your levels into elements that you can recognize from another player's perspective. Um, how did you go about that? So the, the core level design sort of evolved over a long period of time over making the game. Uh, the first level we made at the jam had some of those tenants in place. Every level in the game is split into four colors. So it lets you break down a level into quadrants uh, very easily because people are very able to recognize colors at a, at a glance. And from there, they're able to say, okay, well, they're now in this quadrant, so they have less information to process about the space. So it simplifies the job for players. Um, then I started to develop uh, sort of ways of breaking down the space and sort of codifying it. Uh, a very obvious, but actually a little bit less effective, depending on how good you are at the game method, is the landmarks. Very clear and explicit landmarks. You know, the first map we made in the game was using a museum, and it was using these, uh, like, museum elements. So like a dinosaur skeleton or a statue of bears or paintings on the wall. And those are very effective at brute forcing the concept across that, you know, the player A is next to this thing, I'll go shoot them because they're there. Um, but the next effective method was actually just using a level design itself uh, and using the strengths of space and structural spaces to help define regions, define relationships between players in 3D space. Uh, and then smaller elements, uh, like landmarks. I think landmarks are like the third tier. They're like, so it's like macro, which would be the colors, and then mini would be like the stru like structural elements, and then micro design would be, you know, things like landmarks, which codify space in sort of like a meter by a meter area and really help you get them pinpoint accurate as opposed to getting them uh, majorly original. I also noticed that you've made an effort to give the player characters unique designs, even though they're kind of invisible 99% of the time. What was your process for designing those? The first player model we had in the game was, there was only ever one at the jam, and that was just Gennaro, like it was literally a ragdoll, like it's the, the word ragdoll, I think it was mm -hmm. just, I think then I iterated on it and it became like a joke on the ragdoll, so it was like a sack person. Um, and then I made it a sack woman, so I had made sure I, like, w one thing was really important was we had to have, even though the characters are kind of meaningless in the game, I still wanted to have gender parity. Um, so, and then I have a lot of, like, ambiguous characters in between, and then a lot of just dumb things like bears and people in chicken suits. So the character design is basically taking on the second side of screen sheet, other than the weird mechanic it's sort of the weird flavor the game also has. It's a comedy game at, at, to some extent. If you got a kill, you want it to laugh, and if you got killed, you still want it to laugh. Um, is it something that you have to think about when you're balancing a game like this, that people are going to be killed by things they can't see, but in every other game, getting killed by something you can't see is really annoying? Yeah, so it kind of was the balancing factor, I think. I think we used comedy to offset surprise, if that makes sense. So... There's the ragdolls that when you die, but the weapon design itself is just kind of weird. And then there's the kill messages. And all of that is essentially there so that if you if you just get shot out of nowhere and you have literally no idea how you died, um, you'll just be like, we kind of want you to chuckle instead of being pissed off. The game sort of transitions smoothly between being like a fun, lighthearted party shooter into being like a competitive tactical shooter. Um, and those, those comedy elements basically help uh, smooth that, that transition out.
I noticed that like we're seeing a lot of local multiplayer emergences with like a lot of games. Um, do you think there's a good niche for games that aren't aiming to be the next like Call of Duty or Battlefield? I don't know. It's weird. So like, it probably has a lot to do with like my distaste for gamer entitlement. Um, but I don't think we would have been nearly successful if we hadn't added our online feature. And the only reason we even added that online feature in the first place, because the game was originally intended to be purely local only, um, was to basically we used online as a development tool because for the first six months of development, it was we were remote. So Justin was in Melbourne, I was in Sydney, um, and it let us test level designs and test content uh, remotely. After that, it just was a good enough feature that we left it in the game and then have to keep supporting it. But uh, yeah, I have really mixed opinions on like whether or not I think there's a feature in local multiplayer because I you just get slammed if you don't have online. I think it's probably better now than it was, but if you're a commercial developer, I would never suggest anyone to take that risk. Um, I would always recommend them to put online in their game because gamers are stupid and won't buy something unless they think they can play it online, even though they don't. Because to back that up, I have we found out that 75% of our players, or something along those lines, uh, actually just play locally anyway. So despite everyone demanding that we have online, and then everyone demanding that we fix our online play, turns out almost no one's playing it anyway. And the people who do play it are the vocal minority. So it's kind of this weird push and pull between trying to maintain public image and also make the best experience. Are people happy to just accept a bit of information, uh, even if it's on the, the platform that they're not playing on at the moment? Yeah, well, I think like communication's the easy bit. And, yeah, I think this comes back to, like, t entitlement issues. Um, the thing I don't like about our community is how much they expect us to update the game. So the game's been out since October in 2014. Um, and, you know, we stopped really working on content for the game around three months ago when we released our last update. And that was kind of like our lock-off point for content. We still get messages and we still get people talking to us at events being like, you know, when's the next update coming and we're like we're working on console and that's basically how that's how we sort of push it off for now at some point we're just gonna have to say like look guys we've been working on this game straight for a year releasing free content just like you know we're gonna keep stabilizing and we're gonna keep updating it but we're not gonna keep adding stuff but at, at some point they're just gonna have to accept that we're gonna stop working on the game does that mean after your console comes out that you know you're going to consider everything's feature complete you can play it as it is we're just going to bug fix and you're going to move on to your next project from there or or what what's the next plan i think i think that's definitely what the case is unless the game explodes basically um because consoles are going to theoretically recoup all the money we've lost updating pc um not to say that pc was being updated for no good reason like it was being updated with content because we knew that the game wasn't didn't have enough stuff like it wasn't quite the asking price. And now I think it's well beyond the asking price. It's that weird fight of me like wanting to be ethical and not really not charge for content, but then also wanting to, you know, work on a new game and use that money theoretically for something new. Was either of them a little bit more difficult to port to than the other? Um, it's really hard to say, actually, because one definitely took less time, right? So the PS4 version definitely took less time than the Xbox version. But we did the Xbox version first, and a lot of the big changes were actually just changing the game's structure to fit a console framework. It's all functionally very different on consoles, even though it might not look like it is on the surface. I have this feeling that if we'd done the other way around, it would have been exactly the opposite situation where PlayStation 4 took a lot longer than Xbox because the framework for a PS4 
did most of the work for Xbox, where it was just switching out features, you know? I think a lot of it was learning curve. And there's definitely, like, learning how to be better at developing games on console. And now I think that if we did another game again, we'd probably future-proof some of that work so it wouldn't take a longer either, because what we'd be doing is being like, well, this game's going to go on console for sure. So, you know, oh, when we're implementing this feature, let's make sure that we structure it in such a way that when we port it to console, it'll be really easy to do. Screen Sheet will be making its PlayStation 4 debut on the 1st of March, and it's also coming to Xbox One in the first part of the year. For more information about the game, you can visit the Samurai Punk website, and that website is samuraipunk.com forward slash screen sheet. You're listening to Pixelsift, or you might be watching Pixelsift on Twitch. Pixelsift. That's right, you're listening to Pixel Sift. This is episode 19. This week, a big game came out uh, that's been kind of making the rounds, making the press, touching hearts, Mm -hmm. touching minds. It was called Firewatch, and it's been a long-anticipated game and kind of has taken the, uh, I guess, the genre of a sort of a narrative story game to a different sort of level and a different sort of uh, area. But... On, uh, I guess, one of the sages of Reddit actually came along and posed this question. He's a real sage. He is. He goes by the the sagely name of Spunk Monk. And he asked the question, (laughs) does a game like Firewatch uh, fall into the category of, you know, the equivalent of an Oscars bait game? A game that's designed to attract awards and attract um, accolades. Something I'd like to call Oscarbation. Yeah. As its primary aim. Um, What do we think about a game like this? Now, I know that uh, video producer James has spent many hours late at night waiting until the game had been released and then played it until the dawn um, and said it was quite a phenomenal game. And uh, Mm, It touched him in places, I think he said. Yeah, he did. uh, I think that's a quote. Maybe paraphrasing slightly. (laughs) Yeah, paraphrasing slightly (laughs) on that one. Yeah, but I mean, it has this, it has had a big thing, uh, impact. A lot of people have said, uh, you know, it is, you know, very visually striking story-wise. It's very innovative, um, you know, and it is. It's a beautiful looking game, and I, look, I like the idea of it. Um, I mean, you still yet to play it more than a couple of minutes of scene from here, but yeah, I think that's the kind of thing I could get into. And it's, it's, it's. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of this kind of um, as games get the chance to be taken more seriously. These kind of art house, are, you know, I, I don't want to use the word narrative based, but you know, things that take away from or step away from what we traditionally get out of games. Well, or, like, yeah, go on. Well, like Os- Oscar bait. <clears throat> to use that term with quotation marks, I, I I think games have another have another level to offer if they want if they want to be designed to win awards, and that's gameplay elements and mechanics. So you can either do something story driven and with a, I guess with an agenda in mind that is designed to make you think about a certain issue or topic in a different way, or you can do something very innovative and give players a new element of play. For example, um, in the Sundance, like in 2006, a game called Nabacula Drop was um, won some awards, and during that time, everybody thought it was quite good, and that ended up being the same mechanic that Portal was based on. And a lot that, of the team actually moved And a lot across. of the team from Digipen. But the problem- so, that's, I guess, something that you could elaborate on. The problem with these awards, I think, uh, and like in making games for awards- is it that there's so many different awards out there? You know, like, they, their meaning is, I guess, minimal. You know, you've got 
British Academy Game Awards, the Game Academy of Interactive Arts and Scientists, BAFTA Game Awards, Golden Joystick Awards, Spike Video Game Awards, and the list goes on and on, like Dice, etc., etc. It's not even touching on all the magazines that put out their own kind of versions of Game of the Years. All the websites that put their own Game of the Years exactly. as well. Exactly. So, like, it almost seems like if someone wants to make their game a Game of the Year and stick that as a, a sticker on the front of their package and re-release the package, like, they're going to be able to find someone who thought that they were the Game of the Year. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if these games are... I mean, it's, if, if Oscar baiting is a legitimate thing for video games or the future of video games, then, like, I don't see much point of it, really. If, if, if anybody can be rated as Game of the Year, then what's the point of kind of aiming for that as a game? I think we lack it's shallow. Our, we lack our official, for lack of a better term, institutions that can... I guess, evaluate games. Like, I guess everybody's trying to be the next one and until <clears> the audience latches onto a particular one, I don't think we're going to have, like, And the there academy. isn't a standardised version at all. Yeah. There is no, you know, one academy that awards out the Oscars. There's many different sort of organisations. And maybe down the track there will be one that's seen as the thing. I know the BAFTA awards that they give out for the thing are, are perceived as pretty high because obviously the BAFTAs are... Because it's a legitimate thing outside yeah, of games as they're well. they're right. They yeah. do film awards. And Sundance as well, of course, does yeah. films as well. So, you know, maybe we'll, we'll see, like, the academy will eventually rule on games as well and say yes that's this is the you know but, but with best special effects like or best graphics awards in anything are pretty contentious you know even the academy awards or the golden globes or whatever in whatever median uh are not a highly debated kind of thing so bringing games into those markets is not going to help i think you know then uh, anybody figure out what is the game of the year sort of thing if anything's going to be legitimate it's going to come from the gaming scene and unfortunately there's too many coming out at once um, I mean, there's lots of games I feel that are kind of pushed towards this Oscar bait thing. Um, one we mentioned last week was um, Beyond Two Souls, featuring you know a um, uh, couple of Hollywood actors. You know, there's there's nothing more Oscar baity than that for me than trying to actually draw in. You know, I, I think Oscar the interesting nominees. I think the interesting thing about it is that, like reviews, awards are only worth what you think of that person's opinion, mm. and having so many different opinions out there kind of means that you're going to have someone that, you know, you're kind of playing the field in a way that you know that there's going to be someone out there who's going to agree with what you're, you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's an authority question, effectively, whether you believe in the authority of this particular outlet. And if there's so many authorities out there that people think, uh, you know, they're putting out a game of the year, this is putting out, you know, a 9.7 game score or, or whatever, it sort of does diminish the, the value of these particular things. And for a lot of these games, like Firewatch, for example, which, you know, maybe was attempted to, maybe it's a game to sell <coughs> a million copies or, or whatever, yeah. but maybe there's an artistic expression in that that shouldn't be quantified in a way that there's an award and we're saying, yes, this needs to win X number of awards to well, be a good game. Well, when you say it's designed to win an award, I mean, the Oscars is a very good example of the movie scene, but I don't think Firewatch can be considered... I mean, you can't obviously see which award it's trying to win. No, no because no. like, there's no institution yet, so I don't yeah. think we're at that level yet. I don't, I don't subscribe to the fact that Firewatch was designed to win an award. I don't, I don't actually subscribe to that. Well, I think it's interesting that someone is trying to put, I guess, the old world media rules on top of this this That's new true. type of of genre, and that people see a game like this and think, well, maybe it's not going to. I mean, just like films, there are so many different types of films. Mm -hmm. You know, something like The King's Speech, for example, is not the same as The Avengers. And one of them can win Best Picture and they're still going to be good films depending on the audience. And, and it is such a subjective thing, not just on the people giving the awards, but the people who are watching or playing the games. 
So for some person who might look at something like a game like Firewatch or maybe even uh, Jonathan Blow's new game, which is The Witness, which mm-hmm. is a puzzle game and sort of very arty sort of style to it, or things like Gone Home as well, which has a, um, a strong narrative arc yeah. to it. Even to an extent, Life is Strange. Life is Strange, for example. You know, like for someone else, that might be like, yes, this is a a game that has really, I believe, is my game of the year. And this is the one that we think is going to be the best one or or whatever. But it's it's totally in the eye of the beholder. It's just like art. I feel that that, that's perfect there. I mean, you've got the difference to say between a professional review, which is going to take into account, you know, their their groundbreaking and their, their, their... the artistic whatever of the game and give it a, probably a high review because it's, you know, something different and testing new boundaries and whatever. But as far as gaming, you know, plays versus, say, your generic, you know, what you would take out from games, say, user reviews, probably not going to be as high because, yeah, you're going to miss the mark with a lot of people and a lot of people are going to freaking hate the game. There are people who, are, you know, who, who think of themselves as strong gamers mm. and all they do is play sports games. You know, yeah. like uh, you go, I'm a gamer, I play sports games. And yeah. something like that, you know, they're going to think a soccer match is shithouse. Yeah, a soccer match is not going to win the, you know, the, you know, the Golden Globe or whatever for mm-hmm. the best uh, TV show, you know, or it's not going to win that because it's a different type of different type of thing. So, you know, by having these sort of things where certain things are going to fit to certain categories and, and not, it's a judgment call that someone has made yeah. based I've, on that. I've, I feel like these, the, what we're actually trying to say with Oscar bait type games, I think anyway, is you're more kind of the games that are winning the prizes, like the, the Last of Us and stuff like that. You know, these triple, more AAA style titles that are kind of um, deliver an emotionally, they, they, yeah, they impact emotionally, I guess, on you, mm-hmm. and they, they make you feel things like like uh, Firewatch did with James. Well, I think that's similar to what the the films that would win as well. You exactly. know, there's something like that that you know you have your popcorn films, mm. and they may not win the best thing; they may win a special effects thing, and very similar to games. This you is know? where the term Oscar bait comes from, you know, because they're generic, like generally dramatic, kind of you know sad, um, you know, touching on true world stuff, and that's why these games are amazing because we don't have them really up until well, very sparingly. Anyway, I think it's fantastic that we can have a conversation about this with in terms of awards and, and all sorts of yeah. different things and and the way that we can kind of uh, look at these things in a, a sort of a through a lens of all these different old forms of media. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, that's all we've got time for today. So we've reached the end of our show. When are we doing the Pixel Civil Awards? Oh, <laughs> I, would, I don't know. Oh, don't start this one. Uh, <laughs> Thank you again for joining us on Pixel Sift. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the show. As usual, we'll be putting all the links up to things we've talked about on the show on our website, and that website is www.pixelsift.com.au. Scott, people on social media, where are they going? Uh, Facebook.com forward slash Pixel Sift, Twitter.com forward slash Pixel Sift, and Twitch.tv forward slash Pixel Sift. Also on YouTube yep. as well, YouTube.com forward slash Pixel Sift AU. Every week. So we know that we're in Australia. Mm-hmm. Mitch, uh, if people want to listen to our old episodes, where are they going to go to? Yeah, you can check them out on our website or you can subscribe to our podcast on either iTunes or Pocket Casts or using the RSS link on our page. And if you could give us a rating or a review, it would really help. Um, we really appreciate it. And it also gives us some ideas about what we can do for further episodes. And yeah, let's get in touch. We're on social media, so drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Yep. That's all we've got time for. So let's end this episode now and we'll go <laughs> for a bit of this. Play some games. Peace See out. ya. See you guys. Thank you.